Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. There's still time to learn. It's a scrappy little season. I do Foley as a side job, just kidding. Murphy Brown's first Emmy winning season. Jim is my favorite and he is perfect and I love him. It is a really great season. We love season two. Look at us. Who knew? Who knew? Hello, this is Lauren. And this is Jesse. And welcome to the season two recap. Wow, we're here. Who knew? Who knew? Who, Who knew? knew we could honestly we knew. Look at us. Live your life at your own pace. There was a, a lot of things that happened, y'all. And we're so appreciative that you joined us on the journey through this. We love season two, so it was honestly worth the wait for us. And we we truly hope that it was worth the wait for you. Yes, we were itching, itching to come back. It was no, nothing about wanting. We yes. we really, really are excited to be here for which is interesting. Murphy Brown's first Emmy winning season because they won mm-hmm. best comedy. Finally. Finally. It's after so funny two that we seasons. say finally. We're like, finally, because we know in retrospect that they deserved it. <laughs> yes. And it's it's I think really very telling, right? Because it is a really great season. Yes. I think we've talked about this in in the, you know, show itself as opposed to in this recap. So uh, apologies if I am, you know, repeating myself. But the concept of that a season two and even a season three, but particularly a season two is when you get to sort of build on the characters you've already created. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little bit of a shorthand because, and it becomes more character oriented comedy. Mm -hmm. Not that there weren't character oriented comedy in season one, but I just feel like unlike other shows that I've watched, even the difference in quality of season one and season two, even though season one is really great, I mm-hmm. feel is a really sort of large valley for me. Yeah, well, I think the difference is is that the character-driven comedy in a first season is all about establishing yep. why these character quirks are funny, why these scenarios are amusing. Whereas in the second season, we now get payoffs to patterns that we recognize. So seeing Jim go on Roasted, you know, like those things are funny because we know Jim. You know, like the 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 things, you know, Miles's big adventure is funny because we know Miles from season one. The, these are things that we are laughing at because we have a history with them now. So they're they're more satisfying character payoffs because and I would say season one even actually pulled some of this off with the finale of season one. Agreed. The full circle that they created, which is such a testament to the writing, because that type of season end payoff normally feels like it's a farther down the road. So the fact that they were able to pull that off is proof of why it deserved to have the seasons it did. But season two just feels like, oh, our friends are back in a way that you don't get in season one. Yeah. And being able to sort of watch it linearly like we are to see, oh, well, there actually is kind of a bit of an arc with Jim, particularly in the first half with Roasted, but also with Anchors Away Mm -hmm. of of something very real of him sort of questioning his place in the world. Mm -hmm. But also sort of, uh, and also, you know what, let me take this back a little bit. I would also say that the episode on the road again is also him questioning yep. his place in the world, but his place, I don't want to say virility, but you know what I mean? In his private life, mm-hmm. right? Like about yeah. being relevant um, privately as opposed to um, being relevant on camera in his job. I think, I mean, shocking absolutely no one who listens to this. Uh, Jim's arc is my favorite part of the second season. And I think a big part of that is actually what I said in my remarks about the passing of Charles Kimbrough, which is this is when we really see him at the crossroads of 
what does my relevance mean and do I care? Mm. And none of it has to do with whether or not someone else took his relevance from him. It's just him doing internal reflection and you're watching it come out in the way he responds to the world around him. And it's so satisfying to watch the fact that we gave kind of the elder statesman of the cast, this very subtle arc throughout the, the season that shows up in specific moments in specific episodes, but it really is they allowed and Charles Kimbrough took the opportunity of having this emotional arc throughout a season that I don't think you necessarily notice if you weren't looking for it. It's just a nice mm-hmm. kind of, you know, subplot storyline. But that's what they were able to do with a second season because we've set up these characters and now we can kind of watch them breathe more life into their existence. Agreed. And then also a second season is a great time to meet people's parents. Even though we've already met oh, Murphy's yes. mother, we get to meet a Murphy's father, which is, I think, one of the highlights of the season, Brown Like Me. Yes. And we, I mean, we do sort of meet Corky's parents, you know, at the end of the season. <laughs> I don't think we meet them in the same sort of depth that mm-hmm. that we do, obviously, you know, with Murphy. But it's it's such a great way, you know, what is it on, um, on the Ted Lasso line? I love meeting people's parents because it's a it's a guide to why you're so crazy. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I like this, like season one to season two comparison that we're doing is especially when you have a character whose parents are not together, Mm -hmm. very commonly you meet the one and then you're left wondering what the other one is like, because you've heard about them. So having met Avery in the second season to get to meet her father and see what they're like, that's such a brilliant way of, of using this, this split parental unit. Yes. And I think also what makes it so lovely is that scene when they do sort of come together and they almost kiss and you sort of you rarely see that when you have sort of fighting couples. Right. You mm-hmm. you, you get a sense of like why they got married and and yeah, it wasn't all so bad. I really love Brown Like Me. It's well, and Lauren, I don't know if you want to speak to this when it comes to Emmy submissions, Emmy wins. It's a we funny- know somebody else really loved that episode. <laughs> yes. So that actually was the episode that Candace submitted. You can submit up to an hour for lead actor, and then you can submit up to two hours, which would be four episodes for supporting. And so she submitted that particular episode. Now I have noticed that sometimes they will just submit one, right? Mm-hmm. But technically you can submit an hour. So she submitted Brown Like Me, which again aired as an hour. It wasn't a two-parter like it is in syndication. Now, on that subject, I always think it's interesting to talk about what episodes people submit. So if people don't realize it, that technically people are being judged on the episodes that they submit because most people just don't have time to watch an entire season. It doesn't mean that the person who's voting hasn't seen the entire season. So to say Mm -hmm. that they only won for that particular episode is a little bit of a misnomer, I think. But some people maybe don't watch the show, and so that's their only introduction. And it is truly like if you've ever done jury duty, like you... You have to make you have a a framework with which you are asked to make your judgment. And so when people do a submission, you are being asked to consider this when considering everything else. So the nominees with Candace and she won the Emmy that year. So this was the second time she won two years in a row. We have Kirstie Alley for Cheers, Blair Brown for The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, which is a show that I think that sometimes gets lost. Like the first season was on NBC, but then it was on Lifetime, I believe, after. But many people Mm -hmm. see this as, even though it was a drama, as sort of a precursor to Murphy Brown because of the similar situations that she was in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Delta Burke for Designing Women and then Betty White for The Golden Girls. 
Oh, what a group. Yeah. And then Best Supporting Actor, which we talked about in the episode with Alex Rocco, because it was so funny that Alex Rocco guest starred on the And the Winer Is episode as his character from the one season series, The Famous Teddy Z. So, so specific. And then went on to beat Charles for the Emmy. <laughs> and I don't know why I thought that oh, that was funny. Mm-hmm. But he submitted Anchors Away, Roasted, and On the Road Again, which is his entire arc, right? So it's, that makes... Yeah, man. If you want to, if you want to have a good like gym centric day, just watch those three. Yeah. Oh, and, so and to good. remind people, unlike when we started season two, you can now watch unedited, so non. Mm-hmm. These are cable copies online via the internet database, and we have that link on our website. So definitely check that out, so you can follow along with us, which is very exciting. Until they take it down, hopefully they won't. Mm-hmm. Now, Faith was nominated as well. She lost to B.B. Newworth in Cheers. And her episodes were, and the whiner is, Bad Girls, and then Going to the Chapel parts one and two. I, I agree with those submissions. Those are great. And also, I agree with how do you go up against B.B. Newworth in Cheers? It's really hard. Like, really, how, really hard. how do you do it? <laughs> but also, she was up against Julia Duffy for New Heart, Estelle mm-hmm. Getty for the Golden Girls, and then Rhea Perlman for Cheers. Yeah, I, this was, everyone has to remember, this was like Cheers dominance. Yes, and I went back particularly to remind myself what was because ha- Kelsey what Grammer was also nominated. Yes, but I wanted to see like what season of Cheers this was that they lost mm-hmm. to, and it's a it's a major Robin Colcord season. That's yeah, a good well, one. It's, we also have Woody Harrelson for Cheers, Kelsey mm-hmm. Grammer for Cheers. Like this was during the time when like Cheers was a behemoth, and people I think kind of forget that. people know that it's it's just ubiquitous as a as a reference but like this was during a time when like way to go if you go up against a cheers nominated person oh yeah i didn't say you mentioned it but i i didn't mention that other than kelsey Grammer and woody harrelson in that category with charles also jerry van dyke from coach yeah another show that that was lost oh coach coach was great what a time i loved Mm -hmm. coach and people don't know jerry van dyke is the younger brother of dick van dyke Uh uh-huh yeah something i just wanted to touch back to so Lauren was kind enough to pull a lot of great articles. So I'm over here on Murphy Brown, Anatomy of a Sitcom Duty, our beloved book that we recommend everyone get. Yes. And so it has notes about the season two episodes. And one of the things about Brown Like Me at the end of that episode, I just want to read you a little excerpt about the episode itself because it is such such an excellent episode. And when I think of season two, it's one of the episodes I consistently remember. Same. Without referencing. And it says, this is probably the most ambitious script to date. It flirts with some well-known potential disasters, a high quota of sentiment, strong guest stars who must be meshed with the ensemble cast, twice the usual amount of time to fill. It works beautifully. Murphy's character is central to its success, hence why she submitted herself. We enjoy learning more about her all the time, and it is the writer's job, especially Diane's, to make that new information consistent with what we know, yet still a little bit surprising. It requires excellent writing, building on a firm premise. It's absolutely true. Like, if Colleen Dewhurst and Darren McGavin didn't work together... Mm -hmm that episode never would have worked. But also if Candace wasn't so good at playing off of them as their child, you know, something we, we see a lot when we see guest stars come in is how the lead reacts to being around their parents. And if they do, and she does, and actually Faith does great with this as well. And going to the chapel, they both have the slight ability to kind of revert to a younger self around mm. their parents. Oh yeah. We all do in a way where we, it's believable like we all do and not in a way that, is something like, who is this character now? I believe that this was a younger Murphy 
around them, but I still see the Murphy she became because of them. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that scene with her and her father and him talking about like not being able to Ooh. talk to her and they'll Candace isn't even speaking in that scene. And obviously I think, you know, not, not that I know anything, you know, about her, you know, personal musings in her head, but like, one would, could guess that that's something that she could relate to, a relationship with a father mm -hmm. like that. Well, I shouldn't say. She's talked about it in her books. Yeah. Just the look on her face while he's giving that speech is one of my mm. favorite moments in the series, honestly. Yeah. And, and eventually when we get to, you know, the plane episode when they think they're going to die and the montage, the place that that's in also is why I love it because it it's it, to the story arc of Murphy's life when you see that sort of in order, you know, yeah. plus some new scenes that they filmed of Murphy as a child with, with him. Mm -hmm. Such an interesting, complex relationship. And, and parents are human, too. I think there's something that we, obviously, with, you know, Devil with the Blue Dress and all that kind of stuff, we talk a lot about how Murphy and Corky are kind of placed opposite each other in a lot of scenarios. Mm -hmm. And something that I really enjoy that happens with them is also their relationships with their, their parents their relationship with their mothers, their relationship with their fathers. And something that I find very interesting that I hadn't considered until I rewatched this season was the idea that they are kind of two different versions of a daddy's girl. Oh, oh, that's really interesting. And the different, like there's, there's the quirky daddy's girl that we all kind of assume, which is a little bit like daddy's little princess and a little bit more stereotypically feminine. And then you have the daddy's girl that I align with, which is somebody who, is a lot like their dad and looks at their dad in a way that is less, I don't even know how to phrase this, but I think you know what I'm talking about. I think I do. And, and there are different manifestations. Yeah. And to add on to that, something that I hadn't even thought of until you mentioned it, because Murphy does have sort of a, a difficult relationship with her mother, which, you know, in season one would assume because they are very similar, uh -huh. but often the parent in a divorce you know, the parent who was left to sort of be the actual parent, right? Yep. Gets the the short shaft in a way mm -hmm. because they have to be sort of the non-fun parent, but also they're the one that's there. Mm -hmm. And so an idea of sort of a fantasy parent sometimes can be thought of because that parent isn't there and you long yep. for a relationship with them. And yeah, so, the idea yeah. of like the disciplinarian parent versus the one who doesn't have to do that so they get to be the fun one. I think there's... There's a lot to Murphy that I find interesting in which she often rejects her similarity to her mother. And I think there's also a lot about her being aspirational toward her father in especially being someone who's trying to kind of shrug off stereotypical femininity. But I think there is something interesting. Murphy is such a perfect example of someone who is the perfect blend of her two parents. Yes. And is regularly ignoring the stuff where she's actually the negatives that she is so similar to. I just realized that Murphy's parents did not get a divorce until she was an adult. And so, I mean, semi-adult. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forget in the first season, I think she says, I divorced him 15 years ago, or does she say that in season three? But I think it's not as long yeah. as we think. But that being said, I think the sentiment is still true because what they imply is that he was so busy at work that he was not a parent to her. Yep. So whether he was literally in the house, she longed for something because he wasn't there and therefore maybe revered him in a different way than, than yep. Avery. Which also generationally makes sense. Yes. Which is why, you know, we love Avery because Avery was like often a born at a different time type of gal. 
Yes. <laughs> Even for and her was own not, time. Was not interested in the uh, gender stereotypes. No, 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 no. And tells it like it is. Oh, God, Avery. But very quickly, so they were also nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Directing, Outstanding Guest Star for Morgan Fairchild as Julia St. Martin. That's Outstanding Guest Actress, I should say, because as we spoke about, just to remind people, because it makes me laugh and it makes me mad at the same time, <laughs> as we talked about in Heart of Gold, the Emmy website, NJ Thomas's website, <laughs> and... Anything you find on the internet, including my scrapbook. (laughs) So it was back before the internet says that Jay Thomas won Best Guest Actor in a Comedy Series in 1990 for Jerry Gold. But apparently, according to Diane, because she was there, is like, no, no. Davin McGavin won. Yep. Um, and that was because uh, Gavin misunderstood, which I totally get why, that the guest actor category was being presented during the Creative Arts Awards, which is presented on the Saturday before the Emmys, because it shouldn't be there. And uh, once we get to 1992, we'll talk more about that, because there was a big controversy. Mm-hmm. That being said, it is in his ob- obituary, though, that he won the Emmy for this. So someone had it somewhere that it was true, but long live Jay. Long <laughs> like, live Jay. And because here's the thing: he in every press thing I've ever read, he's referred to as a two-time Emmy winner, which yep. he knew wasn't true. <laughs> and it mm-hmm. just makes me laugh. But it also makes me go, oh, well, it should at least be on the Emmy site. But anyway, mystery. So they were also nominated for outstanding sound mixing, outstanding editing, outstanding writing, outstanding supporting actress, as we said for Faith Ford. Outs- and this is the one I needed to get to. Outstanding Achievement in Costuming for a Series, because yes! Yeah, yeah it is. And uh, and they did win the next year, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. This season had some costumes. Some costumes. I just- And you know, we just finished up going with going to the chapel, so like we, obviously those ones, but also the fashion in general really took everything we observed in season one about telling the story of these characters mm-hmm. through how they dress themselves to the next level. Like you- you now are like, that's a Corky costume. That's yes. a Murphy costume. Like you're able, and we're able to be like, oh, Murphy's kind of dressed like a Corky today. Like that we start speaking in those terms because the storytelling of how they dress themselves is so clear by this point. Yeah, I forget the episode, but I particularly remember what Murphy was in this lavender dress. And I was like, that is a Corky outfit. Yes. It feels like they're still figuring it out. But it feel, feels like then when they finally got it, you were like, oh, this is sort of the signature Murphy Brown look that I know of from the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. And that's something interesting that I had not really noticed in another show. But obviously, like, because that's what we're doing here is we're paying attention to that kind of stuff. Yep. And I think it was really sort of interesting because now now by the end of the season, we're into the really great chunky jewelry, the blazers that sort of, you know, either match or like sort of, you know, go with mm-hmm. another color of like a, a camisole or a shirt skirt pants frank's jacket is just like front and center whenever possible (laughs) he wears that particular you know shirt belt pants Mm -hmm. thing that we have in the 90s i mean everyone wore that but people know what i mean by when i say that it's a very specific kind of shirt yeah no i there's so many like i can't even pick like my favorite because there there's so many and i Mm -hmm. i also love how they kind of mix it up like oh well the vest from Heart of Gold is being used without a jacket in this scene, but with a jacket mm-hmm. with that scene, which obviously we all do. But sometimes you see on shows where like nothing is repeated and you're like, well, yeah, that's you're like, not really believable. 
Yeah, there are some characters where where you can believe that they have an endless rotation of trending items, uh, Corky. And then you have other characters where it's a little perplexing that they seem to be that fashionable. So I think I like seeing the reusing, especially on someone like Murphy, who is practical and expresses herself through her fashion. But also, I do believe would actually reuse something every once in a while. <laughs> Well, that reminds me of something that I I was reading after Charles passed away about how he sort of originally saw Jim as someone who around the office would wear like, you know, a sweater with the patches and a little bit more relaxed. But they sort of made him more of sort of a bit of a a clothes horse in the Uh sense that he didn't dress flashy necessarily or lots of colors like Murphy, but very sort of tailored, very sort of like, you know, well made well-made suits and eventually it it comes into the dialogue where he talks about you know getting a suit in Milan and like Mm -hmm. he's someone who really sort of understands men's fashion which is very particular to him well and I love that it's understated classic men's fashion yes as opposed to other men that we'll see going forward who are trendier like he is someone who has classic investment pieces he is somebody who would go to Milan for a well-cut Italian suit you know like he is he's that kind of clothes horse yeah. Oh, so so I have a question for you because yes. we have talked about significant guest stars in that have come up, but there's one significant guest star that we have mentioned the actor, but we have not mentioned the character yet. And oh. I thought you might have some thoughts about a, a a gentle man, perhaps who may have shown up at some point. Are you talking about Jerry? Oh, Jerry. I mean, How do you feel about season two, Jerry? Season two, Jerry. So season two, Jerry is really interesting, right? Because Mm -hmm. the first time we meet him, which again, I've said on the show, when the first episode that I met Jerry Golden was Heart of Gold. I did not see him in the first appearance on the show until years later, which of course is whose garbage is it anywhere we're where he is a full-fledged asshole. Yep. (laughs) So I always want to let people know that that obviously clouds my judgment of Jerry. That's okay. That's okay. It is a story that I think that we necessarily could not get away with today. Yeah. And I know the revival kind of tried to do it where Frank was dating a Fox host, but I'm sorry, a wolf host, right? Someone yeah, wolf. wolf. Oops. But we saw, sort of saw their, we never saw, we mostly saw their relationship off screen, which was very sweet. And they didn't really talk about politics. Whereas sort of the core of Murphy and Jerry's relationship is that I would say they get off on the fact that they fight with each other. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I say as an adult and didn't articulate as a child. Uh-huh. But something that I found that was interesting that I remembered after the fact, but then I forgot about again, that I didn't mention in the episode was something that Diane said as to sort of ins- sparked her to come up with the idea that they should be in a relationship together, other than the fact that they felt on set that Jay and Candace had really great chemistry. Yeah. Which she was inspired by Connie Chung and Maury Povich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, like, very funny. And just to remind people, you know, Maury Povich, had, he was the host at the time before... This is before he had, you know, the the talk show and like, who's your father and he's yeah. not the daddy, um, was a current affair, which was very explosive at the time in syndication and was definitely tabloid journalism. And she says, he does stuff like that so explosive and she's so mainstream. What do they talk about at night? So I would love to use this moment. You mentioned a current affair. Oh, yes. There's something at the season two rap party that connects to that. Oh, please go from ahead. From the book. So one of the, so the great thing about this book, we've talked about it before, but just a reminder, it's Murphy Brown, Anatomy of a Sitcom, an inside look at a classic in the making. 
So this was made, it covers seasons one and two. It was made while this was happening, which is something really cool. It's it's a, yeah. you know, a basically a physical documentary of what was happening at the time. But the book ends with the season two rap party. And I won't read all of it to you. But one of the things I find very enjoyable is that it says the official rap party occurs two days later, Sunday, in the newly refurbished Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, a landmark just across Hollywood Boulevard from Grauman's, now Mann's, Chinese Theater. There are some 200 people, cast, crew, staff, guests, and writers who crowd into the Blossom Room, site of the first Academy Awards ceremony, on May 16th, 1929. So the invitation for this cast party... Yes, please, please share. ...is bright yellow, featuring a mock-up of a TV Guide cover displaying Murphy Brown 20th Anniversary Reunion Special, dated April 8th, 2008. The picture is a composite of the seven members of the cast. The caption is, Murphy Brown cast circa the late 80s. This cover lists articles to be found inside the Mythic Edition, and here are some of the articles inside it. The cast of Head of the Class finally graduates. Meryl Streep joins Knott's Landing. Former President Quayle talks about his first week as a host of A Current Affair. (laughs) And then Knockwood star Vanna White discusses her upcoming role as Lady Macbeth. And finally, CBS... God. Sorry. What? I don't remember the, what. The final one is CBS airs Dead Air Mondays 8.30 to 9, Garner's highest ratings yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You know, the, the, the Meryl Streep does television though is 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 pretty accurate. Just, right. Just 10 years too early. Yeah. I but like I it's so interesting to me some of these references that are st- like we would know today if you didn't have these references yeah. but some of these are so specific i the former president quail talks about his first week yeah, as a host of a oh, current affair former president quail oh Ooh. man also vanna white getting called out <laughs> but something i it's find also really... a dig at candace too though oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> so one of the things that i find the most fascinating about this rap party description and there's a lot of mm-hmm. great stuff there's stuff talking about talking with norm gunsenhauser who with his partner tom seeley had accepted a development deal at paramount the stage was set for later discussion with russ woody and stephen peterman who confirmed that their agents were looking around in anticipation of news that diane and joel were unable to come to terms with warners for the third season so throughout this description of this book they're talking about will there be a third season yeah and it was active discussion and they say our initial interviews with Grant and Candace some eight months ago had put us on notice that a cloud of doubt about the future was forming, but nothing really prepared us for the events we observed in March and April. Hmm. Now at the party, everyone knew that this remarkable group of talented executives, writers, cast and crew faced a somewhat uncertain future, not from internal frictions, but from failures in producer studio negotiations. Oh. Joel felt he would, quote, know something by the end of the week indicating there was a less than 50% chance that he and Diane would be back. Wow. This was no charade. By April 16th, the door to negotiations was closed. So, so at this point, like everyone's, there's a comment. Let me just find it real fast. Cause I find it. It's just, it's, it's laced throughout this, how everyone felt like they, they weren't coming back. And, said for all but a few the decision was beyond their control but everyone with whom we spoke voiced concerned and they said they talk about how everyone had this look in their eye like it might be their last time oh wow and what i love is they said 
it says in the in the final two paragraphs it says yet as we look toward the third season we remember that these people are professionals working on the best half hour comedy on the air as we quoted joel earlier quote television is a business people move around are we still enthusiastic about the show it's a terrific show we love the people involved but in this business two years is a lifetime and in fairness to Diane, she has prepared for this eventuality by providing a solid foundation for a continuing successful run. The special style and character of this series have been etched by Diane on her carefully engraved calling card to the industry. We can only hope that the indelible imprint can be tracked by a new team of producers and writers. And then a couple wow. spaces down, it says, FYI, Warner Brothers has come to terms with Diane and Joel. They will return to Murphy Brown for the third season, June 15th, 1990. And part of that was a development deal for her to produce, yep. her and Joel to produce more uh, shows in the idea of becoming like their own sort of Norman Lear. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to me that as this book was being written, as this was happening, as they were coming off of this incredible second season, like we know now that they just went on and were, you know, and Candace just decimated the competition going forward. And, yeah. And, but and, like they didn't know. They all thought this might be their last rap party together. But also it's sort of great is that, and I mean, obviously you always want to, in negotiating, right, to like be like, yeah, I would totally walk away. But the fact mm -hmm. that like these are people who know them privately, yeah. right, that, and I understand that this guy is pressed, but still like the book was going to come out probably, you know, they knew the book would come yeah. out later, right? The idea that like Diane and Joel were fine to walk away if they felt they weren't getting the worth of their talent. And like or Diane's talent. Yeah. And like by the cast party, they thought there was a less than 50% chance. I also would love to see how this book would have been marketed had they not been renewed. Yeah. And I remember, and I can't remember if it was in an email or if it was on our show where one of the writers said that they were all sort of surprised that the writers of, because, you know, the, the people who wrote this book wrote a book on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. Which... Now, in all the articles that I found, everyone keeps comparing it to Mary Tyler Moore. And Diane is like, I didn't really watch that show. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, I, I was working and there weren't VCRs. So, like, you know, I guess you could compare it. But, like, I didn't watch it. I watched yeah. the news. But the fact that, you know, to do to see a show that's just in its first season and go, we should write a book on that is is very risky like they believed yeah. that it, it was one of those shows that would be like a cheers you know like even if the show hadn't gone 10 seasons to think like in season one like oh this is going to go at least five like mm -hmm. that's a lot to say and that i love that quote from joel about how two years is a lifetime it is for sure like to be able to do a show like that for two years to have that that ability to tell a long-form story as opposed to just writing a pilot and hoping someone will let you being able to work with the same people, being able to kind of have some security for what, like two, two seasons of a show is something at most people dream of. And so yeah. I, I love the, I love the number of perspectives in this, this final rap summary about what that felt like. And they didn't know, like you don't know most of the time in this industry until you get a multi-year offer. Yeah, and now you could be filming the show and they could not only cancel it, but then mm -hmm. decide not to air it. You could have completed the project. Mm-hmm. It could be completed. It could have been announced. The press is going, and it doesn't matter. They could just stop. So I, I appreciate that I think people who are not in the industry don't fully grasp how tenuous it is always. It's 
let alone, you know, trying to explain to people who don't know what it's like to audition, that you're just constantly mm -hmm. going in for job interviews, like all that kind of stuff. Yes. But the idea that even when you think it's guaranteed, it's not guaranteed. It's yeah. we were talking about the Oscar nominations because uh, we're recording this on Oscar Sunday. And you know, there are tons of people that think that once you win an Oscar, you're set. But no, you could win an Oscar and then not get any offers for years. You could like there is nothing set in this industry. And so I love. I, I, I mean, I hate to see people who are nervous and insecure and not sure if their job is going to be there yeah. uh, the next month. But it's also wonderful to just see the honesty about it because it's very easy to view people who are, you know, finally at the top of the mountain as we think and be like, oh yeah, their life is so hard. They have a TV show. It's like, but they might not tomorrow. Yeah. And I forget who it was. And I want to say that it was, um, who just passed away, who was, uh, who won the Oscar for Cuckoo's Nest as the nurse. I feel like, oh, yeah. and I could be wrong, I think that she told a story about how the day after the Oscars, she had, like filed for unemployment. Mm -hmm. Like she went directly to the unemployment office. Well, for and example, also, Kihi Kwan. Mm, oh, yes, please. Talked That's about a better story. That, no, your, your story is gorgeous. It inspired thank, my story. Oh, thank you. So he, he saw Crazy Rich Asians. We know the story. It's been everywhere. And I, I love him, so I'll tell his story forever. But he saw that went to his agents and literally just booked everything everywhere all at once, did this incredible role. And then the pandemic happened yeah. and they couldn't release it. And so he wasn't booking job. He had booked this incredible job that now has like skyrocketed his career. But at the time the job hasn't been released. So he couldn't book more jobs because no one knew that he had this comeback in the mate. No one knew that he was going to be this Oscar nominated supporting actor. He lost his health insurance through through the union because he wasn't booking enough to keep his health insurance. So he had he's now Oscar nominated, hopefully Oscar winner for this incredible like genre bending, you know, industry breaking movie. But no one knew. So he couldn't get health insurance for years. And it's also a great example of perspective in the industry, right? Because yeah. he was he he wasn't someone who was doing offers. He was auditioning and he wasn't yep. booking it. And yep. I and to add on to your story, I he said that while they were editing it, he asked the Daniels, like, uh, wait, actually, I'm not sure if he asked the Daniels or his manager, you know, am I any good in it? Oh, yeah, it was the Daniels because they were like, why are yeah. you asking this question? Of course you are. He's like, because I can't book anything. I don't know. <laughs> and so, there, right? And so there's this idea of like, well, people only want to put their their money on a, on a winning horse. I uh -huh. fucking hate that thing. But like, you know, well, people want to attach themselves to a winner. And yeah. he was still doing the same work in his auditioning that got yep. him the, the role that's going to win him the Oscar. But because of some perspective, people didn't want to give him, give him yeah, another chance. Because uh, he wasn't, chance. they didn't want to bank on him because at that point, like they were like, talent is yeah. one piece of this process, of this industry. He is obviously so incredibly talented and everyone's like, he's so great. Then why wasn't he booking? Because it's not just about talent. And it's about the fact that no one, they were going to give roles to people they could quote unquote bank on. And yeah. that's, that's the injustice of this is now in retrospect, Beyonce. <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you. In retrospect, we're like, oh, all you people who missed out on this incredible man. But there's a reason they knew to them, they weren't missing out. And, and that's what's be really sad. It also could be underlying racism too, but oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. Which we but can talk but it's about. that incredible thing is that you. It's so easy for us. It's that same thing with you know. You look at someone's Instagram and you're only seeing the cultivated positive go, side of it. Right. Mm -hmm. You can look at these people and be like, okay, they're a movie star. Like, oh no, you didn't have health insurance. 
the man didn't wasn't a movie star then. He was just an actor trying to get work. It didn't matter what the project was. If the project doesn't get released, it doesn't matter. If your show doesn't get picked up again, you're back in the trenches with everybody else. Like we really need to have this perspective for for artists in general that nothing is guaranteed. Yeah. Nothing. I mean what and that's a really good point too. I think that people they don't really understand art as a job. Mm-hmm. And so it's not only what you said, but it's also things like, oh, well, you should give me your art for free. Oh, exposure can bite me. Like, this is how I make money and eat. So, like, I got to actually, you know, make a living. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, then do something else. But you like what I do, right? Like, you want what I give. So, like, if you're not willing to pay me, you think I should quit? Like, I'm sorry, where do you spend your money when you're... When you're not working, I'm pretty sure it's going to the movies. It's watching TV. It's doing all these yeah. things that who do you think makes those? Those people need to need to be able to feed themselves. Yeah. But it's like people have this idea that like all actors have live in a gated community and have uh-huh. lots of money. And it's like and it must be nice. Yeah. One percent of the SAG after are like continuously working actors, let alone, yep. I'm not sure how much of that are actually movie stars. Yep. You can, you can work with famous people, but that doesn't mean that you make the same money that they do either. Yep. Like it's, it's, it, and that's also just a perspective thing we can talk about, but it comes down to that art needs to be respected. And maybe mm-hmm. it's because people think it looks easy. Yeah. Well, and bringing that back to, to the season two, you know, kind of recap that we are doing yes this this show the reason that we have a podcast these these icons that you know we are watching you know working to this day they didn't know at this rap party if they would have a job the next day yeah and it's so it's so nice to read this and know the answer for them but you're watching like this this work that they're doing and they're doing it unknowing <laughs> like they they are doing it knowing that it might be the last scene they shoot. It's also interesting because I believe that on our show, Norm said that he regretted that he didn't stay past season two. Yeah. But but you understand if this is what was going on, if they were offered a development deal, why uh-huh. would you take it if you think the, the job that you love might not be there? Exactly. They didn't know. At, at, at this point, when they like took this development deal, Joel is over there saying there's a less than 50% chance that they're staying. <laughs> like, yeah. And- I, I think you would want to take the, the sure bet as not as a like, as someone from an artistic standpoint, as a human who wants a job, who wants to support themselves, you're going to have to go with the job that's available. Yeah. <laughs> so all that said, please buy this book. Buy it used, please. Yes, uh, which is probably how you can find it because I don't think it's, I think it's the only published way to find anymore. It. Yeah. eBay, Amazon, things like that. You can find Bookshop. it. Bookshop.org. That's probably a better option. Thriftbooks.com is there you freaking go. great and it's not Amazon. Anything that's on Amazon would be great, but sometimes I don't know. <laughs> sometimes what it's to the say. only option, and I understand. Yeah. But something interesting, looking back at these articles, which, by the way, I now have some of these that I wish I had had when we did some of the episodes. But uh-huh. <laughs> someone got a newspapers.com free week, <laughs> and some interesting things because we had talked about in the winer is that that whole speech about. <laughs> A Murphy that Corky gives about her being this old tree it was sort of lifted off of Deborah Norville calling Jane Polly an old oak tree. <laughs> but something that also was sort of lifted almost verbatim is in Anchors Away, when the audio goes out and Miller has to sort of vamp, apparently that was lifted verbatim from the first 
episode of Primetime Live with Sam Donaldson and Diane Sawyer. Huh. And it happened to Sam Donaldson. And I got to find that footage. Maybe I can cut it into this episode or if not, put it on the social media. Uh-huh. But I thought that was really funny that that they, they were like, oh, let's just take this literally word for word and, yep. and make it comedy. Brilliant. And everyone will think that we made it up. But obviously with a Murphy Brown spin to it. Also something in one of these articles, they were talking about like possible future ideas. Mm-hmm. And most of them they ended up doing. But the one that I wanted to tell you about, Jesse, that we should chat about a little bit, was that apparently Harry Reasoner went back to school to get his degree because it bothered him that he never got it, but did it as he was like a working reporter. Ooh. And so they said they clipped out the, the article on that and that they thought it would be a really neat, quote, story for Frank. I would have loved that story. Right? Oh, my gosh. Frank's neuroses being the oldest student in the room. Yeah. Frank, like, getting graded on something. Can you imagine the meltdowns? Working on projects. Go- a graduation oh gosh, episode with his parents. His graduation. I was going to think of, like, him do- having to do, like, group projects with, like, 21-year-olds. It would have been a great arc for oh him. Oh, my gosh. And I wonder if what happened was they just never got to it. And then when Diane left, that idea went with her. Like, people just kind of forgot about it. You know he would have had a, like, 22-year-old classmate that he thought was really cute who then referred to him as, like, her uncle or something. You know, like, someone who, like... called him sir. Yeah, called him sir or, like, thought of him as, like, a big brother. Like, something... Like, it would... Oh, man. I want to write that fan fiction. It would have been one of those, like, where were you when Kennedy was killed? Yes. And everyone was like, I was a wee baby. And he was like, oh, God. One of the Kennedys was killed. Oh, my anyway. gosh. That would have been so good. Yeah. Diane, oh. if you're bored and you want to just, like, write the fan fiction, I'll read it. I mean, there is actually Murphy Brown fan fiction out there. Oh, yeah. Old, oh, but there is. But it's there. And also something interesting is they do talk about in some of these articles that they are aware at the time that uh, the downside of doing such a topical show that it might not play in syndication. And I thought that was interesting because I think a lot of us, at least me, thought when we interviewed people for the show that that was a new idea that they came up with. That like in retrospect, they realized, oh, that wasn't a great idea. But it sounds like they knew it while they were writing it, but they just felt it was the best avenue for a show about someone in the news business but mm-hmm. also just like wanting to do really good work and being like well we can't think about the future yep well and i think what what it did in i think there's definitely a time period where it became dated and maybe possibly uninteresting but now it's aged well and it because now it's a period piece you know i agree and yes i think it's something that happened as well with west wing i was just gonna were, say that jesse i was just yes, gonna say that because when i do west wing rewatches I think there was a point where I was like, ooh, this is dated. And now you look at it and you're like, wow, some of this is still relevant. And now as, as kind of a period piece, it's really profound in a way that it was just topical at the time. But now it's incredibly profound to be like, wow, we're still talking about that. And I, I also feel like it goes back to two things. It goes back to a lot of the political references, unfortunately, still resonate today. Mm-hmm. But also... If they don't necessarily don't, it's not like you miss the story because you don't get one joke. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think, And I think it goes back to what the staff of Cheers used to say, which is one of my favorite things about comedy writing, which is anytime they would have sort of a very sort of intellectual joke, mm-hmm. they would follow it up with a lowball joke. Yep. So that the people who were laughing at the, the highbrow joke 
uh, wouldn't feel lost because they're still laughing when the other joke happens. And then the people who are laughing at the low ball joke but didn't get the high ball joke don't realize they didn't get it because they're now laughing yep. at something else. Yep. And it I feel allows like everyone to feel included. Yeah. And I feel like Murphy does that also. And I think that's something that, you know, and this makes complete sense because of who we're looking at. But I think that's something that Frasier always did really well for being yes, such a highbrow comedy of intellectuals. It had both types of humor because you had the intellectual humor, but it was also a lot of the like lower brow comedy was at their expense because they were such idiot intellectuals. Like they were still idiots. And that's why it was funny. And I think that these shows that we love for the same reasons all were able to do that. Yeah. And that was why it was it, it was so smart to have Frazier's father be sort of this blue collar guy, not just yep. because that that creates conflict and, you know, you need conflict for story, mm -hmm. but also because then you had the two types of comedy there. Because if it was just Frazier and Niles being Frazier and Niles, I think oh, a lot so of people boring. would get lost. It would be really boring. Yeah. Yeah. Because you'd just be like, well, yes, yes, you're both so, so smart. You're so smart. Yes. So one last thing that I found that was really fascinating to me, because I was the one who did the sidebar when we did Murphy Went to Jail and talked mm -hmm. about the journalists who went to jail. And I don't see why this was a mistake, because, of course, I was thinking like 80s on. Right. You know, because that sure. would have been their influence. And then talking about more influences today and how it's changed, because there is such a, an attack on the First Amendment in modern times. Uh huh. But apparently in an article, Diane said that they were inspired by a reporter named Marie Tory. And I thought, oh, I must have missed this. This must have been like maybe, maybe it was in the 70s or something like that, even though I looked around that time as well. And it took a while for me to Google them. But this is a case from 1959. Oh, no. It's a, so I'm sorry. I'm just going to because I full transparency, everyone. I have no idea what she's about to tell me. Yes. So I did see a wicked glint in her eye, which makes me very nervous for my <laughs> personal opinions. So I'm just gonna, we're in the 1950s. And it's a woman who went to jail? A woman who went a to woman, jail. A, a, a female reporter? A female reporter. And um, do you want me to oh. tell you the name of the case first? Oh, goody do. I'm going to guess what it's for. Go yes. for it. Garland versus Tory. Garland? Oh, God, just tell me. It's Judy Garland. No, I was so nervous. <laughs> Oh, I God. know. I didn't want it. I wanted it to be physical Garland. I wanted it to be like she like miss like she she didn't de decorate for the holidays well. And because she was a woman, they sent her to jail. Like oh. I just. Oh, it gets no. worse, Jesse. It gets okay. worse. Go for it. And this is not a reflection on Diane being inspired by this. I totally see why, because it, it's up until recently, until 2014. Yeah. She was the reporter who had been in, in jail the longest amount of time. So yeah. like I get like I don't think it's about the subject. I think it's about her place in history as a journalist. Oh yeah. I no, just I want to say that. Every every reaction I'm having is to the real life events and not yes. to uh Diana or Murphy Brown. Exactly. So Judy Garland brought an action against CBS, funny enough, huh. in district court because Tory had claimed that the reason that she was tentative about doing her most recent television special was because she felt fat. Oh, yes. Uh, okay. Um. Wow. Marie, may I call you Marie? Not cool. <laughs> Although, and this is just me guessing, I think it's, it is a bit of a testament of the kind of beat that women could only do at that time, which was yeah. gossip and style. Yeah. And it's, 
we, you know, the phrase like women on women violence, Mm -hmm. it's, it's that thing of Marie Tori probably went in wanting to be the gym dial of her age, you know, like went in with every intention to be as legit and hard hitting factual based investigative reporter. And the only thing they would allow her to write about was other women, what they looked like, who they were sleeping with. Yeah. And listen, Barbara Walters talks about that on the Today yep. Show, that that was all they would let her really do. But, oh. I should clarify no, also that Also knowing d- Judy Garland. Like. Yeah, I, I should clarify that, that Tori actually worked for the New York Herald Tribune. The reason that Garland brought the suit against CBS was because a CBS executive was quoted. So that was her source. Oh, wow. Interesting, right? And so when she refused to reveal her source, Tori went to jail for 10 days. For 56 years, that was the longest that a reporter had been in jail until October 2013 through March 2014 when a reporter went to jail for 155 days. So she, that person broke Tori's record. I, you know, here's the thing. While I think that that writing about someone's body and where they sit on a body type scale is abhorrent and shouldn't be uh, lauded, and they probably deserve a non-physical smack of some metaphorical sort, the fact that that is the person who was in jail the longest as a reporter for that is also slightly abhorrent. Yes. I think my biggest takeaway from this is is twofold. I think that this is a scenario where I, I think the short version is this is a scenario where no woman wins here. Very good point. Agreed. The, the object being uh, spoken about the woman who has been objectified and reduced to her private and intimate obstacles and how that affects her outward work and appearance is a victim of this. And so are the women who have been told that this is the only way that they can make it in their chosen profession. I don't know the full nuance of Marie Tori's side of this. So it's hard to fully, fully support and call her a pariah. And also it's hard to fully condemn her because I don't entirely know how much she was gung ho about this being how her career turned out. But I also think that it is messed up that the person who was in jail the longest for something for as a reporter was a woman who was doing essentially highbrow gossip. The, I just, I I do think it is harmful. I do think the way that we talk about public figures bodies is harmful both to the individual and also the people consuming it. But I think that there have been some other incredibly problematic and damaging things that have gone out there by reporters that the idea that that's the longest until what did you say? 2014. That's 20, bananas. Technically 2013, because it was the end yeah. of 2013, because it was 155 yeah. days from the end of 2013 to uh, the spring of 2014. Yeah. So that's, that's that I find mind boggling. Not to diminish the harm that was probably caused by this, but I've seen a lot more harm. Yeah. <laughs> like if I had, if I had just found, again, if I had just searched a little bit f- higher up that, or honestly, I may have even just like known that it was a thing that was taken, but didn't think that it would be inspired by someone that far back, right? But anyway, yeah, I think that if someone had come to me and just said, hey, the person who was in the jail the longest before recently was an entertainment reporter, I would go, you're lying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like of all the, precisely, there you go. Yeah, it sounds like a joke. It does. 
And it really shows what we actually care about and will actually get behind. It's much easier to get behind the injustice of entertainment reporting than it is political and social. But I think it also comes down to the point that, like, if if this was either happening today or we were back then, not that we'd have our modern sensibility, but you know what I mean, is to say, I don't agree with what you did, but I support your First Amendment right to not reveal your source. One thousand percent. And honestly, that is happening right now. It does happen right now. Yeah. So I, I think the fact that it's, again, when we look at this is such a tangent, but I promise it makes sense. <laughs> the way that we finally put mobsters in jail was not for the mob crimes that we go. wanted them in jail for, but it was for the money laundering and the tax evasion. It's a knowing the reason why she was put in jail is a lot easier, I think, to come down on a side about. Because while I don't agree with what you were writing about or how you were writing it and the fact that you let your position do these things... I do agree that you have a source and you're not going to reveal it. Yeah, because technically, like Murphy, she was held in criminal contempt. Yep. And the fact that it was an entertainment person, I just, that really yeah, blows my I mind. Yeah, I know. That really blows like, my mind. Like Mary Hart. Yeah. <laughs> like, what if Mary Hart was arrested? And put exactly. Like, of all that, truly mind-boggling. And you know what? I thank Murphy Brown for how many years later pointing me down the avenue to learn this information. <laughs> Right? This is why you listen to the podcast. Because not only do we talk about our favorite show, is we inform you about interesting facts and trivia and history. There's still time to learn. There's always time to learn. We are we are the companion. All right. So I guess we'll close the book. We shall I'm literally close, close the book. Close the book. Would you like to close it, Jesse? One second. <clears throat> well done. Thank you so much. I do Foley as a side job. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, on season two, um, do you have any final thoughts to talk about uh, season two as we wave from the shore? From the shore as, it, as its anchors are away. Um, <laughs> I will say I really loved rewatching this season and seeing what it was like to watch this show start to find itself. Mm -hmm. I think it had one of the strongest first seasons I've ever seen on a show. But this it just I felt everyone sit sit back and just breathe because now they knew who they were. They knew what they were doing. The payoffs were so, so satisfying. The new character arcs, what, being able to see a show that gave everyone essentially some form of a character arc in its first season, give them new arcs that weren't just kind of telling the same story. Like Corky always has the same story. It goes from A to B. Being able to see them already prove that they're not going to do that. They're not going to recycle things was so exciting to watch and shocking no one. Jim is my favorite, and he is perfect, and I love him. Yes. How about you? For a season that I I first started watching Murphy Brown so that I, I don't have a good memory of ever watching it in order and, and seeing episodes that I later only saw in syndication, and that also, like, because I thought it wasn't my favorite season, I wouldn't watch it in order the way I watched season three and season four continuously. Mm. It was really very refreshing to revisit this in order and see these lovely arcs, yeah. to see where everything sort of fit in from from Jerry to to Frank, to Corky, to Jim. And, and I don't know if it's because, you know, when Charles passed away, I think we both revisited a lot mm -hmm. of episodes, particularly cutting together the beautiful thing that you said. I don't know what to call it. A, uh, I mean, the beautiful tribute. tribute. It's just a tribute. Yeah. I appreciate Jim in a way that I didn't before, and I apologize for that to you. 
Hey, you're all you're doing is giving the gift of love. Thank you. But to see all of the sort of details that he has done throughout the season to become the gym that we know, mm. I'm so glad that we were able to take the time to really watch it in this way. And I now have a new memory of season two, which is that I absolutely love it, whereas before I was sort of like hot and cold with it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's been a gift to be able to take the time. And, and that's I promise that's not us just like being like, see, it was fine that it we we took yeah, a while. No, to we're the, not. <laughs> no, genuinely, it was nice to not rush it um, and to do it when we had the time and the capacity, because I think the season really deserved honest, sincere perspective. Yeah. And I think also it's before the show kind of, you know, got so much money behind it and became mm -hmm. a little more glossier, which is it's fine. scrappy. It's a scrappy little season. It's a scrappy little season. That's a great way of calling it. It's the scrappy <laughs> season and it's huge. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is so many episodes. Like they must have been exhausted. I just think about and and so like thrilled to be exhausted. It's you definitely have that thing where when you find yourself in the middle of doing the thing you love, but you're exhausted, you're like, remember, I want this. But they must have been so tired. Yeah. And, and Denise, you know, uh, it, it went so long that it went into her wedding. It was, she was <laughs> not supposed to, I mean, I'm absolutely sure she didn't schedule her wedding during the show. I think the show no. just went longer yep. and she was stuck. Like people mm -hmm. made plans. You have to make life plans. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really excited. I, I'm really happy about the season. I'm excited to show it to my spouse who is really does not know Murphy Brown except through me and to just, yeah, to hold this season in a different place in my heart. It's, I love what it sets up and I love also what it completes for certain things. That's lovely. Well, you can join us on social media if you would like. Mm -hmm. We highly recommend it. We put uh, clips on Instagram and lovely pictures and funny things on the Twitter. So they're both different. So you can follow us yeah. at both. We are at Murphy Brown Pod. Our website is murphybrownpod.com. You can email us any of your thoughts at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Also, we would not have been able to, to do this show, pay an editor, do all of the behind the scenes things that help us bring this show to you without our Patreon. It's so true. We, we cannot emphasize enough how much we appreciate the support. And it's, you know, there's, there's getting likes and reviews and then there's getting people who are actually literally investing in in our work. And that means so much because it makes it possible for us to take the time. It makes it possible for us to do this, to give you the best quality that we can. And it's, we see your names, they mean the world to us. I know it's been a while since we've, we've come back, but we thank you so much for being with us. Anyone who would like to join our Patreon, we post things once a month. Um, we're also open to hearing what you would like to see on the Patreon. We also take one-time donations if it's not something you monthly would like to do. Oh, we literally just got a new one. <laughs> hey, who's that? It just populated. Oh my goodness. As we were recording, screen name Lollipop just donated on the It Takes Two level. Thank you so much. What up, Lollipop? Join that a very a cool group of people. I like, I just upped the page and I was like, wait, it refreshed. What happened? <laughs> this is what happens. <laughs> this is what you do to us. So in honor of our patrons that we appreciate so much at the end of season two, we wanted to give a little shout out to our public patrons, past and present. Lauren? Yes. We'd like to thank Karen Goldberg. I'd like to thank Lollipop. Cassandra Albright. Nicole Johnson. Libby Brown. Alexandra E. Archetti. Kate Hadley. Kelly Nelson. Christina Wise. MTM Fan. 
Nicole Mason, Maria Oliva Cruz, Cole Medina, Shauna Brock, Ashley, BJ, and Amber Hammond. We thank you so much for so, so much. staying with us. We know that there are other amazing, worthy causes out there. And so we are so thankful that you have helped us in any small capacity along the way. And also, please feel free to let us know what kind of Patreon perks you want, either to join or while you're on the Patreon. You know, we really are just sort of making it up as we go along. We try to put edited stuff and like early drops and like come up with cool ideas that sort of are sort of from the outline of the show. Like we just did one on Faith Ford on Night Court, but we've also done one on our favorite shows that we're watching. Mm -hmm. We also want to acknowledge our private patrons and supporters. Just know that we are saying your names to each other, but we will obviously keep you anonymous as requested. Yes. Now, if that ever changes, we're happy to mention your name, but we know who you are and we love you and we thank you so much. We don't mean that in a creepy way. We just, we know who you are. We know who you are. The, hell, it's, <laughs> the call is coming from inside the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And also, if you are just comfortable giving a one-time donation, that's also helpful just listening to the show, dropping us a review, which is free, is also very thankful and welcome. And we're just happy that you're part of the community. So we're going to take a little break before we post season three, just so that we can get ahead of the game and give you the best episodes possible. Yeah, a little, you know, between season hiatus, as we do in the biz. And so season three will start July 24th. We're really excited to talk season three with you. Yes. Oh, are we? Oh, are we? And we added something to the end of this episode. It was something that we shared on social media, but we really wanted the entirety of our listeners to, to listen to it in honor of Charles Kimbrough. Yeah, and we edited Jessie's beautiful words to her favorite character to some great visuals of Charles Kimbrough. So we definitely recommend that if you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and you can check out that video there. And until then, here are some words I had for Charlie. Charles Kimbrough was simply a legend of stage and screen. As a fellow Minnesotan, he always felt very familiar to me. And while it breaks my heart to know I will never have met him, please go look at the tributes from those who did. What I want to talk about is why Jim is so important to me. In a show centered around a woman, a feminist and aspirational icon, why is Jim Dial, the remnant of a status quo that held women back, my favorite character? It's because of Charlie, if he doesn't mind me calling him Charlie. In Jim's shoes, Charlie brought kindness and my favorite, a silly goose always bursting to be set free. Jim Dial was everything a feminist ally should be. He championed Murphy, not to get brownie points, but for doing it because it was right. He supported Corky because it was right. His insecurities of becoming an obsolete relic were from his own inward reflection and never because someone else took his spot. Jim gave me hope for how my future may be received. And the parts of Jim that made us all love him, the warmth, the flamboyant physicality hiding behind the mask, his chuckle when he made a joke, those parts were all Charlie.